look at Revelation chapter, well, we're going to begin in 18. We'll also look at chapter 19. I just want to read the first three verses while you're standing to kind of set the tone. I've enjoyed this study that we have called Unconquered because the church, the true and living church, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ will remain unconquered come what may. Beginning with chapter 18, we begin reading about this final fall of Babylon. And it says, After this I saw another angel with great authority coming down from heaven, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. He cried in a mighty voice, It has fallen. Babylon the great has fallen. She has become a dwelling for demons, a haunt or a prison or holding place for every unclean spirit, a haunt for uh, every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and despicable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. The kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown wealthy from her excessive luxury. All that the kingdom of the Antichrist and the false prophet, everything that we read about, had, the, had to offer. It as good as it looked, as appealing as it was, for a short time, it all came to an end. And remember what we've said in our study. It meant something to the first century church. It meant something to the church throughout history. And while I believe that there, uh, and I take a futurist approach to the interpretation of Revelation, in other words, I believe that there's a literal tribulation coming and there's a consummation of the age that we have to look forward to and we sing about today and we celebrate today, there's something for us to learn to live today by this passage. Let's ask God to help us understand what it is. Would you bow with me? Father, we thank you for this truth in your word. We thank you for being reminded that all that this world has to offer will come to an end and only those things done for the glory of God and only those who have identified with his son Jesus Christ can have something to hold on to for eternity. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts this morning, that you would bring revival to our souls, that you would help us to all reevaluate our priorities today where we're placing the values in our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And you can be seated. If you ever want an exercise in futility, that's a lot of fun. There's a little game that you can play at parties. I've played this at youth gatherings. I've played this in college. And uh, even adults, even middle-aged adults can get together and have a good time. But it's the game Jenga. Do we have any Jenga fads this morning? Not many, huh? You don't like to say that tower fall. Do you know what Jenga, if you know what Jenga is, at least raise your hand so I'll know I'm headed in the right direction. All right. Thank you. I love to play the, the game Jenga, but it is an exercise in futility, right? Because the point of the game is for what? The wall's going to fall. I mean, right? The, the, you have this tower of blocks, and they're turned alternating directions, uh, three to a, a level. And the goal is, if you've never played... This, you've got this stack of blocks, and you're pushing one out, and you're taking a block from somewhere within the tower, and you're placing it on top of the tower. And whoever places the block that brings the tower down loses. And so the goal of the game is to play it until it collapses. Now, I have read that the record for with a standard 
size tower of Jenga blocks was 40 and two-thirds level. So if you've beaten that before, call Guinness or someone and let them know. But 40 and two-thirds levels. The point is, as you're building this, you're building with anticipation that you know that it's going to come down. As this kingdom that we have read about under the leadership of Antichrist and the false prophet is being built up, those involved in the game don't realize that it's coming down. They're involved in an exercise of futility and they don't quite grasp it. That that's what's going to happen to the kingdoms of this world. And let's understand this. That's what's going to happen to all kingdoms of this world. Only one kingdom will stand in the end and that's the kingdom of God. And only those things we have invested in that kingdom, Matthew 6, seeking first the kingdom of God, only those things will last forever, no matter how impressive they may look this side of heaven. We're going to look at another interlude this morning in this study. This one's following these bold judgments, the bold judgments that kind of paralleled the, the trumpet judgments. We see that the bold judgments, though, kind of intensify in their... Um, impact the, the level of catastrophe that's taking place upon the face of the earth. Uh, for instance, we see the seas, um, a third of the seas become polluted and, 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 and death within a third of the seas in the trumpet judgments, but in the, in the bold judgments now, the sea has turned to blood and it's killing everything in it. So I don't know if that's a future oil spill or if it's literal blood, but it's really bad. The sun's not just darkened like it was under the trumpet judgments. This time, something has happened to the earth's atmosphere where the sun's heat is literally scorching people. We're talking about a lot more than being sunburned here. It's, it's, a, it's a lot more intense than what you experience on summer vacation. And then the seventh seal brings a final blend of catastrophic geological activity with all of the hell and the earthquakes and everything else that's taking place. It's like the world has never seen and out of this, this is just the beginning of the end. People would be looking for something to hold on to, something to hope in, and everything that this world has had to offer will let them down. But remember, Revelation, while it speaks of future events, meant something to the first century church. It spoke hope into the midst of suffering and persecution that they found themselves in, and it had so many parallels with what they were going through that many interpreters believe that it was talking all about the first century. And I believe it has a word for us today, too. And I just want to share with you a couple of principles. And hang on, get ready to turn some pages in your Bible. We're going to read a lot of scriptures this morning. And so I'll keep my comments to a minimum. We won't keep you here until 2 this afternoon. But I want to allow the Scriptures, God's Word, to speak into your hearts and into your lives. Not only is this a long passage that we're looking at, there are other places in the Scripture that speak to these principles. And so if you can grasp a couple of principles this morning, it would be absolutely life-changing if you haven't embraced these already. And the first one is this. Number one, hope in this world leaves people reeling in pain. Hope in this world leaves people reeling in pain pain. By this world, I mean its pleasures, its fortunes, and even its 
religions. And by pain, I'm talking about not only emotional and spiritual pain, but ultimately physical pain, ultimately pain that can last for eternity. And so when we come to this text and he sees this announcement, here's another angel and he cries in a mighty voice that Babylon has fallen and he speaks of this, this earthly kingdom becoming a haunt or a prison. The word here is for a holding place. But I believe it is a picture of, of how abandoned this world will leave you personally, but also how enslaved this world and the sins and everything this world has to offer. And so it's this haunt for un, every unclean spirit, every demonic activity, Every unclean bird, a, a, a place where I believe both literally and spiritually the vultures are taking control and a haunt for every unclean, despicable beast. For all, verse 3 that says, the nations have drunk the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. The kings of the earth committed sexual immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown wealthy from her. He kind of gives a summary of where he's going with this chapter here. I believe reference to adultery and spiritual um, can be both translated spiritually, but I believe it's also an, an analogy of having rejected God. I believe it could be very literal in a sense that why would Scripture, really from the Old Testament to the New, compare turning our backs on God, or Israel turning her back on God, the church turning it back on God, to sexual immorality or adultery. Because yes, it is spiritual, and to be caught up in other religions or other pursuits or to make anything else first in our life and violate our covenant relationship with God is, is a spiritual adultery. But I believe it's also speaking of the intensification of sexual immorality in the world as it continues to grow, or else why would it serve as such a great analogy? And so all kinds of uh, false religions, and certainly here speaking of Babylon, turning from the one true God to the Antichrist, the false prophet in this unholy trinity that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Now what those who feel who were not a part of that might be that, hey, did we miss something? Are, are they getting in on something that we're not? In verse 4 and 5 he says, I heard another voice from heaven, come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins or receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. At this moment, the people of God begin to realize, no, <laughs> we didn't miss out on something. We might have appeared to be missing out on what this world had to offer, we might have appeared to have been missing out on what Antichrist offered, and remember the spirit of Antichrist is already here and has been with us throughout the church age. And we might be caused to say, as a believer, as a Christ follower, when we look at this world and the pleasures, when we look at this world and all of the luxuries it may seem to have to offer, we may say, wait a minute, I'm suffering and sacrificing here. Is it going to be worth it all in the end? It brings to mind one of my favorite psalms, and so if you'll hold your place here, I just want to read through Psalm 73 and ask you, have you ever felt like this? 
Have you experienced? See, see this is a pattern throughout Scripture to where the, the people of God are wondering, is it going to be worth it all? And I've been where the psalmist Asaph has been and perhaps where those who are standing and being persecuted in the last days begin to stand and those in our lifetime today struggle from, from time to time. And in Psalm 73, Asaph, the, the choir leader here, begins to express his own frustrations at a minister in the house of God. He says, God is indeed good to Israel, to those who are pure at heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. My steps were nearly went astray. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He says, they have an easy time until they die. So, so he thought that was his perception. They are not in trouble like others. They are not afflicted like most people. Therefore, pride is their necklace and violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge out from fatness. The imagination of their hearts run wild. Any sinful activity, in other words, that they could think of, man, they just kind of let it go. They mock and they speak maliciously. They arrogantly threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven. Think of those who are attacking religious freedom in our world, in our nation today. And their tongues strut across the earth. Therefore, his people turn to them and drink in their overflowing waters. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High know everything? Look at them, the wicked. They are always at ease, and they increase their wealth. Did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? Can you imagine? Maybe there's a teenage boy, a teenage girl asking that question. They're trying to live a, a life consecrated unto the Lord, a, a life of consecration like we spoke about last week where you're going to stand for Christ come what may, and then you begin to say, well, wait a minute, am I missing the party here? That's what Asaph is beginning to think. Did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? For I am afflicted all day long and punished every morning. If I had decided to say these things aloud, I would have betrayed your people. And when I tried to understand all of this, it seemed hopeless until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood what? Their destiny. I understood their final end. I understood where all of this is going. It looks like they've got it all together, but when I got into God's presence, I saw something different. So I understood their final destiny. Indeed, you put them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How suddenly they become a desolation. They come to an end, swept away by terrors, like one waking from a dream. Lord, when arising, you will despise their image. Shattered dreams. When I became embittered and my innermost being was wounded, I was a fool and didn't understand. I was an unthinkable animal toward you, yet I am always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me up into glory. You know what the psalmist has realized, what Asaph has realized? He says, you know, when I walk with God, I have the joy of knowing I am walking with the one who created me and gave life purpose and gave life meaning, and he has invited me to get in on his plans and his purpose and it's something that's not just temporary, but it's something that lasts forever. He says, not only do I have it in this life, but I have it in heaven too. Afterwards, you're going to receive me into glory. 
you're walking with me, you're guiding me. Verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those far from you will certainly perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, God's presence is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge so I can tell about all you do. You see, what changed Asaph's perspective in Psalm 73 was that while he was envious of the prosperity of the wicked and he thought that they had, every one of this world, the kingdoms of this world, they had everything they wanted, they, had, they were just trucking along and all was fine. And he came into God's presence and he saw a glimpse of what we're seeing in Revelation. He saw their final end, he saw their destruction, and he said, wait a minute, man, I'm feeling sorry for myself when I should be feeling sorry for them. Because I've got a relationship with the one who loves me and created me and redeemed me to walk in fellowship with him. That not only helps that struggling teenager, college student, that young married person who says, I'm trying to do things God's way and it's getting tough now that we've got children in the home, and then that person going through a midlife crisis who's wondering, have I been living this life the right way? Am I doing what God's called me to do? I'm going to spend the rest of my life investing in something that really matters. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25, it says that Moses chose to suffer affliction with the children of God, with, with the rest of Israel, rather than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin or the pleasures of sin for a season. And I would love to tell you, if you get caught up in the pursuits of this world, that you're not going to enjoy it and you're going to be miserable, eventually you will be, but for a while, the Bible says, you may enjoy it because it does last for a short season. But then it leads you to a haunted life of imprisonment. In verses 6 through 8, and, and back in Revelation now in chapter 18, we see this final round of the consequences of this judgment. I heard something I'm sorry, looking at the wrong chapter here. Back in chapter 18, he says, as much as she glorified herself, or, or then he pay back also she has, all that she has paid and double it according to her works. And the cup which she has mixed, mix a double portion. Everything she's been involved with in sin, she's going to reap double the consequences as much as she glorified herself and lived luxuriously. Give her that much torment and grief because she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, I'm not a widow, and I will never see grief. Therefore her plagues will come in one day, death and grief and famine. She will be burned up with fire because the Lord God who judges her is mighty. God is bringing this about. You may ask, well, where is, where is America in all of this? That's a big question people, people bring up when you talk about prophetic apocalyptic literature where's the united states in all this i believe we begin to see a little bit of glimpse of that in verses 9 through 13 perhaps america is reeling in pain because of the economic collapse because of all that was happening perhaps centered in the middle east the kings of the earth it says who have committed sexual immorality and live luxuriously with her will weep and mourn over her when they see the smoke of her burning 
They stand far off in fear of her torment, saying, Woe, 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 the great city, Babylon, the mighty city, for a single hour your judgment has come. The merchants of the earth will also weep and mourn over her. Can you not see our nation in that? If we're still around? Because no one buys their merchandise any longer. There went Trump's plan. There went Hillary's plan. Whoever's, <laughs> whatever's next. Whatever's around at that time. Merchandise of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls and fabrics of linen, purple, silk and scarlet, all kinds of fragrant wood products. Objects of ivory, objects of expensive wood, brass, iron and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, and frankincense, wine, olive oil, fine wheat, flour, and grain, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and human bodies, we might say human resources as well, might even refer to a slave trade. Is that still going on? Even the sex slave trade is at its strongest, unfortunately, than it's ever been. Human souls. It's all coming down. It's all coming down to an end. In 1 John chapter 2 and 15 through 17, writing to first century believers, John said, do not love the world. And by the way, John was writing to help us understand whether or not we were in the faith or not, whether or not we were truly an authentic Christian. And he said, do not love the world nor the things in the world. The things that belong to this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything that belongs to this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of one's lifestyle is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, and we're seeing it culminate in this revived Roman Empire of some time that's called Babylon. It falls in the end. It says this world is passing away. And the one who does God's will remains forever. That's why we're seeking first the kingdom of God. Where are you placing your time? Where are you placing your energy? Where are you placing your resources today? Is it in the kingdom? Or are you trying to say, I've got to discover a way to find happiness in this life. I've got to discover a way to get in on every pleasure that this world has to offer say, well, pastor, I'm young. I've got time to get right with God. Listen, it's not just about you having time to get right with God. I hear a lot of people say, well, I want to have a good time first. You're missing the point. The good time is found through a relationship with Jesus Christ, knowing him and experiencing his best. I'm not saying the easy time because it is the narrow road, but it is the way that you live without regrets, the way you live with meaning and purpose, knowing Christ and making him known in this world, living for what you were created to live for the one who created you. Verses 14 and following, he says, here's the warning. You want to choose worldliness? Here's what's coming. The fruit you craved has left you. All your splendid and glamorous things are gone. They will never find them again. The merchants, remember we said there's, the false hope could have been in the economy or the false religions. He says the merchants of these things who became rich from her, Babylon, this, this temporary kingdom in the end, will stand far off 
in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, saying, Whoa, 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 the great city clothed in fine linen, purple, scarlet, adorned with gold, precious stones and pearls, because in a singular hour such fabulous wealth was destroyed. And every shipmaster, seafarer, and sailors, and all who do business by the sea stood far off as they watched the smoke from her burning and kept crying out, Who is like the great city? They threw dust on their heads and kept crying out, weeping and mourning, Whoa, 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 the great city, where all those who have ships on the sea became rich from her wealth because in a single hour she was destroyed. Rejoice over her heaven and you saints, apostles and prophets, because God has executed your judgment on her. See, you notice a shift here in the tone. In this side of eternity, it's hard for us to have this perspective to where we can celebrate the fall of Babylon because we're so closely connected to the things of this world. But this is a righteous rejoicing. Let's not forget we're living in an age and a day of grace where we're not celebrating at this point the downfall of those who are separated from Christ, but we're sharing the gospel, trying to redeem by the grace of God as many from the wreckage as we possibly can. Remember, God's goal isn't to deliver civilization from wreckage, but deliver people from the, the wreckage that is civilization. So that kind of leads us to our second point. Hope in Christ leads people to rejoicing in praise. Rather than reeling in pain, you don't have to be there, you can find yourself rejoicing in praise, not just at the consummation of the ages, but the way you live your life today. The chapter goes on to talk about, just reiterating again and again, that Babylon is over. This world is done. But look what happens in heaven as a result of this in chapter 19, the first five verses. After this, I heard something like the loud voice of a vast multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation, glory, and power belong to our God because His judgments are true and righteous because He has judged the notorious prostitute who corrupted the earth with her sexual immorality and He has avenged the blood of His servants that was on her hands. Those martyrs of the tribulation period, and I believe symbolically for all of those who lost their, faith, who lost their lives because they stood for their faith, they're being avenged at this time. A second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke ascends forever and ever. Then the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped. Haven't we seen this before in Revelation? Possibly the 24 elders representing Old Testament and New Testament saints. Those around the throne, they fall down and they worship. The creatures, the angels, worship God who is seated on the throne saying, Amen, so be it, hallelujah. A voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both small and and great. See, those who had put their hope in Christ are able to celebrate the righteous and just judgment of the king. And they know that all things are made right. There are those in the world today who either because they're atheist or agnostic 
that don't even believe that there is a place called heaven. We're going to get into that in the weeks ahead now as we're approaching the end of this book. And I'm going to tell you, heaven is a real place. And there's a lot of things we'll celebrate about heaven. Most importantly, perhaps, is the very presence of the living God. Actually, no doubt, the presence of the living God that will be in his presence forever and ever. And I believe it is a very real and very literal place. But do you realize there's not only atheists and agnostics who discredit the very idea of heaven, there's also religious people. There's a movement, and we used to call it theological liberalism, you can call it religious existentialism, whatever you want to call it today, but there are those who believe that heaven is a great concept and that religion is a good thing, and talking about heaven might inspire people to live better so that it just makes life on earth sweet. But if heaven is not a real place, then really there's no occasion for this right here to happen. To where heaven rejoices because God makes things right. You can live your life with confidence. If you believe the gospel that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was crucified on your behalf, that he was buried in a tomb, and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. If you believe that and you've embraced Jesus Christ and you know that he's real and alive and living in you and you're walking him, you can be confident that one day you'll stand in a place where all things are going to be made right. And all things being made right means judging and righteously judging those things that were not right. And so we have to choose, are we going to be left reeling in pain, or are we going to be led to rejoicing in praise? Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 says it this way, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate? How difficult is the road that leads to life? And if you find it, you're going to have to answer the question in this life, which road are you going to take? Which road are you going to take? Is it going to be the narrow road that leads to life or the wide road that leads to destruction? Now, a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that back in the 1980s, we had some pretty lousy music. In the 70s, maybe not so much, but I remember there was a group in the 70s and in the 80s that a lot of my friends got into, but quite honestly, I'll tell you, they just scared me. It, it, It was a rock group. Now, I'm a little fan of Southern Rock. I like Third Day. Back in the day, I was telling one of our teenagers got, got an interest in um, 1980s contemporary Christian music. I was telling him about Mylon Lefevre and Broken Heart. Some of you remember who I'm talking about. Love, love a little of that, that, that Christian rock sound from those days. Forgive me, please. But there was a group, a, 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 a satanic rock group that some of my friends got into in school. And man, they just scared me. AC... D.C. Some of you are like, "Uh uh-oh, man, he's going to quit preaching and going to meddling with my music. Remember these lyrics? Living easy, living free, season ticket on a one-way ride, asking nothing, leave me be, taking everything in my stride, don't need no reason, don't need no rhyme, ain't nothing that I'd rather do. Going down, party time. I just want to see the big X, you know, wrong answer. Going down, 
party time. My friends are going to be there too. I'm on the highway to hell. On the highway to hell. I had friends, well, I just listen to it for the beat. I don't worry about the lyrics. I realize what kind of destruction was entering into the souls of folks who would just pour that into their lives. But you also, if you're not careful, don't recognize the lies that are there. See, the devil don't get to make the rules. <laughs> the devil's not ruling in hell. He is suffering in hell. And this whole idea of Babylon falling reminds us that you don't want to be on this highway to hell. You're not going down to a party time. And if your friends are there too, they're not going to be celebrating. They're not going to be partying. Contrast that to something that we might not have enjoyed listening to if we had embraced ACDC in the 80s. Crusades across America. An older gentleman would stand by the name of George Beverly Shea. And he would sing a hymn, I'd rather have Jesus than worldly applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name than to be the king of a vast domain and be held in sin's dread sway we could say haunted sway imprisoned sway i'd rather have jesus than anything this world affords today you would say well pastor <laughs> sounds like an easy choice to me the narrow road to life the adventure of knowing christ and walking with him hand in hand and making him known rescuing the perishing along the way, or the highway to hell, to be a part of a kingdom and try to embrace its pleasures, but a kingdom that's going to crumble, a kingdom that's going to fall. Well, it's an easy answer. How would anybody make the wrong choice? But Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to what? Death. In the end it leads to death. It seems right because, see, we're smart people. We're the, we're the most intelligent generation that's ever walked the face of the earth, and yet we make some foolish decisions when it comes to which road we're going to be on. Now, for many of us, we have a place and a time in our life where we chose to get on that narrow road. But you know the devil. See, we come to faith in Christ by repentance. We turn, we're going one direction. Repent means about face. It means turn from sin and self and trust in Jesus Christ. It's not good works. We're not turning around earning our salvation. We're turning to Jesus and we're trusting completely in his atonement for us. Now the devil, when he wants us to backslide, he does not try to just say, okay, about face and try to get us to turn right back around. You know what he's done for many of you in here this morning? It's not to get you to do an about face. It's to get you to stray a little bit off the path. If he can get you five degrees to the right or to the left, and then one day another two degrees, and then a little bit, over a period of time, maybe it's rationalizing and justifying and tolerating certain sins in your life. Maybe it's that you've abandoned your quiet time. You can remember where you used to spend more time in prayer and in the Word of God devotionally than you do now. Remember that time? So he's just trying to get you just a little bit off path, a little bit off path, so that you've got more invested in Babylon and the kingdoms of this world 
than you do in seeking first the kingdom of God. And there may be some this morning here under the sound of my voice that you would say, I'm still on that path. I'm, walking, I'm on that highway. I'm walking in the opposite direction. Where are you at this morning? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things that you're looking for, all those things to fill those voids in your life, he says, all these things will be added to you. In other words, I'll give you what you need. I'll give you more than you could hope for. John 10, 10. The thief comes but to kill, steal, and destroy. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life, that you might have it more abundantly. Would you bow your heads with me this morning?